Hey everyone. You know, when we think of our professional careers, very often we're considering where we went to school or the trainings that we've had or the mentorship that we've received along the way. But how many times do we think of all of our experiences in life? You know, the first thing we were passionate about, the first experience that we had of being part of a team or experiences we've had of being part of community. And something I'd suggest here is who we are in our day-to-day work has a lot to do with where we've been and who we've been in the past and bringing all those things into play. So the good habits, the things we've learned, but also some of the tough habits. Today is a really great conversation with our guest where we look at his experience with punk rock and how those things have helped him in his success. So this is a very, very fun conversation, one that I really enjoyed having. And I believe that there's a huge amount of value for all of us to consider how our past is helping us build our future. So my name is Aram Arslanian, and this is One Step Beyond. All right, welcome back, everybody. Today we're doing an interview that I'm really looking forward to. That's with Jonathan Anastas. Some will know him because of his very storied professional career, while others will know him because of his very storied punk rock career. So I'm going to leave that for him to tell. Uh, but I will say that ever since I started this company, ever since I started this podcast, I've been on a real mission about talking to people about bringing their whole selves into work. And I'm a real believer in the idea that every experience you've had in your life is going to help fuel your success, not just personally, but professionally. So we've got a great example of that here today. And so we're going to start up. Jonathan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay. So, uh, you know, I didn't want to get too much into it in the intro, but you have a really interesting background. But why don't we start with modern day? Why don't you tell us what you do today professionally? So today, professionally, I'm chief marketing officer of a company called Live by Live. We're a music streaming platform that combines audio streaming with video overlays of the biggest music festivals in the world. Okay. Lots of stuff we can talk to you about there. Sounds cool. It's a big title. So tell me what you actually do day to day. What I actually do day to day is combine aggregating audience, bringing eyeballs and ears to the content that we put out into the world on the consumer side with also supporting our sales team to bring advertisers and sponsors to the table on that side of the business. Okay. So how did you even find this role? You know, it's often funny how roles come together. I think every person would like to think about their career as an absolute straight upward and to the right line. Mm -hmm. Right. And often when I'm mentoring people earlier in their career, these days I talk about like, hey, everybody's line is jagged, right? And it's not always up and it's not always down. And when you squint, you'd like to believe your career path (laughs) is upward and to the right, right? Right. So the interesting thing about how I landed at Live by Live is I'd been chief marketing officer at a company called The Enthusiast Network. We were a platform for automotive and action sports content. We built the first automotive OTT channel and the largest automotive YouTube channel. 
the good news is we sold the company to Discovery in the third quarter of 2017 and had a nice exit for the hedge fund that owned us. Mm -hmm. The tough part was none of the management team from the Enthusiast Network lasted through the transition to Discovery ownership. Mm -hmm. So my latest opportunity came from a challenge. I was facing not having a job, not having any means of income. We had a board member on the Enthusiast Network a guy, Roger Warner, who's the ex-CEO of ESPN and Speed Vision. And he was an advisor to Live by Live. And Roger and I had a very good working relationship over the two years that I was in the Enthusiast Network. And he, he helped make that transition happen. Mm -hmm. So it's a classic case of often your opportunity moments come from your challenges. Mm -hmm. Totally, 100%. Okay, so you set the stage for today. Um, anything else you wanna add in there? You know things you're enthusiastic about, anything about your personal life? Well, in terms of the career piece, you, you know, I'd say a common thread of probably my entire career is I've been very inspired by, interested in, driven by disruption in the business world. And, and that disruption in the last couple of decades has been largely digital disruption. Yeah. So I built Saatchi and Saatchi's first interactive group and held a PL early in my career at a time at the very beginning of money moving from like television and print and outdoor to digital. Yeah. Later in my career, I was part of the video game industry when we moved from selling shrink wrapped boxes of games to games as downloads, mobile games and monetization happened after you sold them the game. Yeah. I then went into media at a time when Things were moving from print or even websites to social media and OTT streaming services. And weirdly full circle to where I sort of started my passions. I'm back in music, but around how the music business has been disrupted, right? Yeah. You, you sort of think we live in a world of like physical music product. Mm -hmm. Then we lived in a world of like a la carte digital purchases. And now we're in a subscription model mm -hmm. for music, right, right. first in audio and now in video. And so that's been the the common thread. If you sort of think about my past as a performer, I was in a disruptive form of music. Okay. I'm going to pause you there because this is like, we're about to enter into this whole other thing, but I do want to capture really, as you're speaking, I want to make sure that we're really putting this forward to everyone. You've been very comfortable and maybe even someone who is um, part of creating this, of the idea of disruption that's been central to your career and something that you believe in and enjoy. Is that correct? Not just central to my career, but I'm a huge advocate for it. Like I was in a huge debate a couple of days ago about charter schools, right? Mm -hmm. And people were sort of saying like, oh, charter schools take money away from public schools and you're hurting it. And I was like, public education is a little bit like the taxi cab business 10 years ago. Right. Did taxi cabs get any better until Uber broke them? Right, right. No. So my case was public schools were not going to get any better until charter schools broke them. Right. And so I've been a huge believer politically, business-wise, personally, creatively about how the world needs disruption and things need to get broken to move things forward. And you can view that from a nihilistic viewpoint, or you could take it from a sort of optimistic viewpoint. Mm -hmm. But I believe in disruption as a positive agent of change. Okay. So now I feel like I've been leading everyone up to this great reveal, but this is like exactly what I want to talk about. Tell us how that goes back to your early days playing in DYS in Boston. I mean, it's interesting. I don't think, you know, A, 
was 15 when I started playing music. So I don't, I think I didn't have any sense of who I was or even what the world was. And B, I think when you're doing something, you're sort of in it and not outside of it to necessarily take a broader view of it. But looking back on it, I was part of the hardcore movement at a time when, if you think about like wave one of punk was about breaking corporate rock, right? Yeah. Hardcore was sort of about breaking punk rock. The good news is punk rock broke some of the things about corporate rock. The bad news is punk rock perpetuated a bunch of other bad things about corporate rock. I remember when we started bands, clubs wouldn't have us, so we booked our own shows. Record labels wouldn't have us, so we made our own records. Mm -hmm. The punk bands at the time were still in the old model where like they were waiting for permission to play a show. Oh, will you book me? They were waiting for like someone to save them and give them money to record a record. The, the goal was still like a record contract. The goal was still like to give your creativity to somebody else in exchange for a big advance and you'd spend it on drugs and girls and cars just like some corporate rock person would have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And out of necessity, we didn't have those options, so we created our own options. And that's hardcore. And that's hardcore. Okay, so let's take even a further step back. You're a 15-year-old kid, but tell me the getting up to that point. So tell me about growing up, where you grew up, you know, what, what was that like for you? So I grew up in the suburbs of Boston by very well-meaning, very highly educated hippies. Mm -hmm. And... There was a lot of freedom in my household, which probably helped form who I was. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of chaos in my household, which probably helped form who I was. There were a lot of debates about intellectual things in my household, which helped form who I was. Mm -hmm. There was also drug use in my household, which is very interesting because if you sort of think about rebellion mm -hmm. and what rebellion used to mean, drugs and alcohol were sort of initially set up as rebellious tools. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing is like if your parents are hippies, Rebellion is like saying, you need to smoke pot. You're fucking weak. Right, right. I don't need to smoke pot. Yeah. You need to take a pill to go to bed. I don't need to take a pill to go to bed. You're fucking weak. Yeah. You're, you grew your hair. I'm going to cut all my hair off. Your hippie friends think that I'm violent, aggressive. Fine. All right. So, so being raised by some well-intentioned hippies in a Boston suburb. How do you find the alternative? How do you find that space that allows you to really express, start expressing who you are? So how did I discover the world of hardcore? The interesting thing is I met this very well-meaning guidance counselor in high school. And I don't know if it seemed like I was adrift or not sure I wanted to do, but you know, I remember talking to him and it's like, well, what are you interested in? And I was interested in music. And however he did it, he engineered an internship for me at Newbury Comics, which was Boston's first sort of like punk rock independent record store. They also had a punk rock record label called Modern Method Records. And they had a magazine called Boston Rock Magazine. Mm -hmm. And a couple days a week after school, I internship there. And that meant everything from like working in the record store to working at the magazine to working at the record label. And now I was in the city and I just started to meet people. Okay. So then comes DYS. For anyone listening who's never heard of this band, it just sounds like I'm stringing some letters together. This is a band for a certain segment of hardcore that is seminal for us. 
it's one of the bands that you get into and say, yeah, these were the people who helped create what we have today. It's also a very valuable record that took me many years to track down, get, you know, I've owned several copies of it because DYS put out a really legendary record called Brotherhood that many of us have patterned our records on afterwards and a less celebrated second LP, I believe was self-titled. Is that correct? That is correct. That we will talk about later because I want to tie that into the idea of disruption. All right. So how does DYS start? So I'd met Dave Smalley, who'd come to Boston from Washington, D.C. to attend Boston College. And Newbury Comics had really become the center of this very small Boston punk world of which hardcore became an offshoot of. And so I don't know if it was like a Saturday afternoon. Dave would come in the store. I'd meet him. We'd start talking. Al Barill, Jamie Sharapa from SSD Control would come in. Flyers would start to go up for very early hardcore shows, whether that was Black Flag, whether that was the Circle Jerks, whoever was coming to town, and a very small scene started to gel. Okay, but how did DYS start? What was the spark? The spark for DYS was as much our relationships around SSD control as it was anything else. They became sort of the nucleus band. But Dave and I actually met I had sort of paired with a guitar player. He had sort of paired with a drummer and we decided we were going to put the things together and we were going to have a band. Mm -hmm. Very quickly, it turned out that my guitar player didn't work and his drummer didn't work and we had to rejigger some pieces. (laughs) But that was the nucleus. But the glue was still SSD control and going to shows together and going on road trips in the back of Al's van and that gelled the relationship as much as anything else. When it became time for another guitar player, Al Barrill suggested Andy Strahan, who was part of like the SSD road crew, that he played guitar for DYS, right? Mm-hmm. He, he, in essence, put Andy and DYS together. Right, right. Okay. And so now we're talking some serious tribal knowledge here, and I want to get into it. Um, SSD. So if anyone looks at the Cadence website, uh, you'll see I'm wearing an SSD shirt on it. Unbelievably legendary band. Were they... Now, of course, I know you're going to you're going to answer this through the eyes of someone who's like lived a full life. Was SSD as great as we believe that they are today? SSD was both the best band I've ever seen and the worst (laughs) band I've ever seen all rolled in together at once. And what I mean by that is most people would assume I mean the hardcore SSD was the best band I've ever seen and the rock and roll SSD was the worst band I've ever seen. And I don't mean that at all. Right. I mean, for whatever reason. They could not string 10 songs together from start to finish in a live show without something breaking and 10 minutes off or like a piece of gear failing or strings breaking. But you get these moments where they'd string like three or four of the most powerful short songs you've ever seen in your life. And then something would like go off the rails for 10 minutes and then it would sort of come back. Yeah, yeah. There's something about SSD, like even just the logo. Um, I had a client who's completely not at all connected to punk who was on our website. And afterwards he said, Hey, you know, um, I want to ask you about your website. And I thought he was going to ask us about our offerings or our courses. And he said, tell me about SSD. And I was totally taken aback. I was like, well, why are you asking? He was like, well, I just felt you were making a statement by wearing that shirt. And I was like, yeah, yeah, actually I was. SSD is like the real deal. And that's, that's what I think about our company, that we're true outliers. We're doing, we're doing something that I believe is valuable that we had to create that no one else was doing. And I really believe that about SSD. And that's why I wore that shirt. And he was like, would I like them? 
No, <laughs> no, you would not like SSD. SSD is a band. I refer to them as like a hardcore person's hardcore band. Like you love hardcore if you love SSD. They're not the the lay person's you know punk band that you'd be listening to. What are your thoughts on that? Hard to say, right? I mean, I think even hardcore broke down into subsets, right? There were bands that were more melodic, mm-hmm. like the Circle Jerks, yeah. and there were bands that were more hard, like SSD. I mean, it's sort of like, I think sort of SSD is to hardcore what like Black Sabbath is to metal, right? Like it's just sort of like in the groove, stripped down, as powerful as humanly possible, sort of weirdly blues based. But I think the real magic of SSD is that Al Barillo was like Steve Jobs or Elon Musk of hardcore. (laughs) I I can't imagine... Anybody else driving that forward when there was no model ahead of you to do it. Yeah, yeah. Al made the model and we copied it. Right, right, right. Like he made the record label. He made it achievable. You know, it's almost like when I think about when I first picked up a guitar, I really wanted to be an Aerosmith. When I tried to play along to Toys in the Attic, I was lost in like two minutes. And then I put on a Ramones record and I figured out how to play four songs, you know, in like an hour. And I think without the model of SSD in front of us, the thought of like, you can book studio time on your own, find your own producer and make a record, find a pressing plant, find a place in Canada that printed the sleeves for a dollar a piece, find somebody to put it all together, find the phone numbers for the distributors to sell those records. It would have all seemed way too daunting. Mm-hmm. How do you book your own tour? Yeah. I mean, in hindsight, and now I'll be the first to tell these stories, who books a tour and drives 1,500 miles between shows? Right. <laughs> Nobody, <laughs> right. actually, apparently. But somehow, it all made it possible. So it's sort of like when the Olympic weightlifting record got broken. Nobody had ever lifted 400 pounds before. Somebody allegedly lifted 400 pounds in training. That rumor made it around the world. And in 90 days, the story goes, six people had lifted more than 400 pounds, right? Because it was achievable. Right. SSD made making a band for a bunch of teenagers achievable. Yeah. And so I want to go back to this idea about disruption because uh, again, when you said that, I, I had this moment of like, yeah, yes, that's it. So, so much what we are doing with our companies with the intent of disrupting what I believe is an industry that I feel can be stagnant in terms of executive coaching or um, education uh, I'm not here to give someone a good experience where they go to a course, they get coaching like, wow, that was fun. I want someone to be changed by what we do. So that's why we've built this company this way. So when you said, um, when you brought up the idea of disruption, I want to bring it all the way back. Let's talk about punk. Let's talk about DYS. Let's talk about music at that time was big stadium rock, you know, like no one would know how to put out a record because there was a whole system that did that. But punk and more so hardcore said, oh no, we don't need any of that. We're going to go figure it out and we are going to do something that is not for the masses. It's for a specific consumer. It's for a specific person. And it's not going to be something that they're like, oh yeah, I like this record. I listened to it once in a while. It's going to actually become part of the fabric of their life forever. Now I know this wasn't the thinking of a 15 year old kid, but the idea that you could just be like, oh no, we'll just do it ourselves. DYS is part of this wave of bands that are doing this, going up and down the East Coast, you know, taking these huge drives out to the West Coast to do things. But at one point, 
things start to change. And there's a real sense that I got from listening to those records that it felt like that stagnation was starting to creep into hardcore for all of you. Hence that change into a more of a rock space, which in its own way was actually very punk rock against what was going on at that time. What are your thoughts? So if you think about the change that took place in DYS, again, you got to think about a world before social media. So things that changed things were physical things, right? Black flag came to Boston and it changed everything. Yeah. Then four years later, Metallica came to town and it changed everything. There was a show at the rat, an infamous Boston club, probably three quarters of the Boston hardcore scene was there. Imagine 18 marshals. I'm exaggerating because in my memory of looking back, I want to say there was like 18 marshal cabs on stage (laughs) in like a club that held 300 people. Yeah, yeah. But we went downstairs, there was a wall of marshal amps and there was a band Metallica. There were probably the biggest disruptors in metal at the time. And that changed everything. I think we all came out of the room that night and started thinking differently about music, started thinking differently about song lengths, started thinking differently about riffs. But to be fair, earlier in our conversation, you say, why did you pick up a guitar? Mm-hmm. I picked up a guitar because I thought Joe Perry was the baddest motherfucker on earth. Yeah, I didn't yeah, think yeah. Johnny Rotten was the baddest motherfucker <laughs> on earth. <laughs> right. um, so a few years later, those riffs that felt like a stretch mm-hmm. aren't so much of a stretch anymore after yeah. playing 50 shows. Mm-hmm. And being in the studio a couple times doesn't feel so daunting. Yeah. And then again, you got a little bit of a roadmap, right? Mm-hmm. If there's a little bit of a roadmap of how to do a hardcore record on your own, now there's a little bit of a roadmap on how to do a heavy metal record on your own. Right, right. And you have a whole different set of inspiration. Mm-hmm. And you have a whole different set of like now where you wanted to go and where you are kind of come together a little bit. Yeah. So DYS, uh, DYS Brotherhood, celebrated record. Out comes the self-titled record. How was the response to it? So we intentionally, whether we're being smart or silly, took a little bit of a hiatus, like uh, Caterpillar going into like a cocoon. Mm-hmm. Took a little break. We recorded the record. One of the other things we kind of stole from SSD Control was not to overplay your hometown, to almost be like an out-of-town band and only play a couple times a year. And so we'd gone dark for a little bit. And there were little rumors like they've gone into the studio with like some guys in a dance band to make a record. They've gone in a studio and they're using electronic drums. They've gone in a studio and they're making eight minute songs. In this process, because we're in a cocoon of only other people doing what we're doing and not an audience, the feedback loop is unbelievable. Right. Right. Like we're, we're workshopping these songs. And for the first time we have producers in the room who are workshopping the songs and our friends are like, that's fucking awesome. And we're hearing what SSD's doing and it's kind of interplaying and maybe like their five minute song inspires us to be six minutes and their two guitar solos inspire us to do three guitar solos. And somehow we do potentially the world's only hardcore power ballad, (laughs) but it's all taking place in a vacuum and we come out of the vacuum. Mm -hmm. And I remember doing a big showcase set and we play the paradise in Boston And at some point, like we're throwing out promo copies of the second record into a room, a room that's like stunned, a room that's like sitting there with its mouth open, waiting to hear Brotherhood. And we're playing eight minute songs with three guitar solos. (laughs) And we've thrown those records out and they're getting thrown back on stage. (laughs) Like, no, I don't actually want that. 
That's the Boston response. Mm. We in SSD take that show to New York to a show at the First Rock Hotel, venue that holds like a thousand people, which is already pretty big for hardcore. And the negative response happens before anybody starts to play. So at this point, like we'd sort of combine the best of the SSD gear and the best of the DYS gear. And so it's a little bit like Metallica up there, you know, there's probably like eight cabs, there's probably like four heads, all Marshall, all matchy. Jamie and I had ordered uh, Hamer Blitz basses because Nikki Six played them at the time. His was in black, mine was in white. Those are sitting there on stands. And we're backstage and we hear like, it looks like Madison Square fucking garden up there. What the fuck's going on? Before we ever get on stage. <laughs> and then the other part of this is now we're playing more complex songs and there's nicer gear up there. And so now the tone has changed from like, everybody's welcome on stage to like, don't get fucking on stage. Don't touch my gear. And so now there's guys who are like trying to throw people off stage as fast as they can get on stage. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of, you know, adding to the sort of like tone in the room. So, you know, it only went downhill from there. So did you still at that time, were you playing songs off Brotherhood and mixing them in or were you leaning one way or more the other? We were mixing them in with probably like all of the second record and like a third of the first record. Wow, man, that's a move. Okay, I can respect that. So second record comes out. How long does DYS last after that? I can't remember the exact number of days or months. Mm -hmm. I mean, the funny thing is at the same time that there's negative blowback from the audience, there's also positive response sort of in the music community. A guy, Michael Alago, who's the guy that signed Metallica, he starts to see some fanzine reviews that say, oh, you know, they're the Metallica (laughs) of hardcore, whatever. So we end up doing another showcase at the Paradise for Michael with the intention of like, hey, we're going to try to get signed. And at that time, SSD had broken up and Chris Foley from SSD was playing drums with DYS. And probably from that iteration, that was like the best DYS had ever been. Like we were the most rehearsed we've ever been. We're the most polished we've ever been. We're thinking about, you know, set pacing now, what song flows into what song, which you're not thinking about when you're 15 years old. You got like A&R people in the audience. We still haven't, you know, you're in this transition period where the old audience is not happy with you and you haven't necessarily found the new audience. But like we're starting to get some pickup on like metal radio and like starting to get some outreach. And there's like a sort of a rift in the band at that point, right? We're sort of like half of the band is like, you know, we're trying to figure out what are we trying to do now? And half the band's like, make this as big as we fucking can. And the other half of the band is like, I don't know if they're like worried about the audience reaction or they feel like it's disingenuous or we're being too commercial Are we stretching too far? But we're, you know, we're sort of breaking into two camps. And because again, we're still a bunch of kids in and over our head. There's some, we're, we're about to go to Canada and we booked a show and we booked like a serious for that time video crew. And we're going to shoot like a four camera video for some song off the second record. And we've already got promise of like sort of play on like, you know, whatever Adam Curry's heavy metal MTV show was through like Michael or something like that. And I can't remember how we fucked it up, but for whatever reason, we just like couldn't get the van and nobody nobody had money to rent one and the whole thing just like fell apart. And we ended up having to sort of cancel that Canadian run and not shoot the music video. And that was just like, that I think just brought everything that had been sort of separating the band to a head. And that was just the end of it. Was there ever a last show, anything like that? There was never a last show. The last show was the showcase for Michael Alago and Electra Records with Chris Foley on drums. Wow. 
Okay. So DYS comes to a close. And again, for anyone listening, look, we are skipping over tons of really important punk history. And I'm doing this intentionally because while that stuff really excites and interests me, I do want to get to all of this story, how it ends up fueling Jonathan's uh, career and what are the lessons he learned from punk that he brought into that. Um, but I do encourage anyone who's interested about this, like check out DYS. It's so important of a band, such a cool thing. And there's lots of great stuff that you can find about the Boston scene, which I want to keep going into because I want to go into the next chapter. So DYS breaks up. Then what happens? You start up Slapshot. So tell us about that. So DYS breaks up. I keep working whatever sort of menial job I was working at the time to sort of have a music career, right? Yeah. And I sort of realized I, I miss music, but I also realized that it's kind of a dead end life, right? Yeah. So I go back to my educated hippie parents with a bunch of graduate degrees who the ultimate fuck you besides shaving my head was to say, college? Yeah, not for me. Right. And I kind of go back to them and I say, hey, you know that college thing I kind of laughed off? Is that still on the table? And my parents are divorced and my mom says to me, I think what we end up working out is the first semester is a loan. And if I get an A or B plus or whatever, the loan's forgiven. If I get like a B or B minus, the loan continues, but it's not forgiven. And if I get like a C, there's no more money, right? Some kind of performance incentive, which is sort of very surprising for her. Right. I'm the performance incentive guy now, right? <laughs> right. But I get this sort of performance incentive. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I sort of work my way up to the bottom and kind of start with like night school and try to figure it out. And shockingly, I get a pretty impressive SAT score despite the fact that I haven't been in a classroom for two years. And I kind of start this college thing. At the same time, I miss music. and I miss sort of like the gang mentality of a, of a band and the sort of camaraderie of a band. And I miss the energy you feel on stage. And Slapshot had sort of been mostly formed. Mm -hmm. They didn't have a bass player. Mm -hmm. I knew Choke, the singer, very well. Mm -hmm. And we start talking about it and I start rehearsing with them. Mm -hmm. And so I started playing with Slapshot. By that time, the sort of second act of my life had already started. You know, I'm in, I'm in night school, soon to transition to sort of day school. Mm -hmm. But for a couple of years after that, there was a parallel of Slapshot and college. Ultimately, that became untenable. Yeah. And ultimately, I chose college. Mm -hmm. But that was sort of my second wind at, you know, sort of hardcore punk. Okay. Uh, how long were you in Slapshot for? Somewhere between probably 18 months and two years, played all the first shows, made the first record, played a couple shows after the first record. Mm -hmm. So what was it like going backwards musically? I mean, it was interesting because part of it was Slapshot was Choke's band. DYS was very much sort of like Dave's band and my band. Uh -huh. After sort of like all the schism of trying to like run a band a little bit, like it actually felt good to just sort of be like, Hey, I'm the bass player, dude. Yeah. Your band. You write the songs. You figure it out. Like, he put this whole great image together. He had a whole sort of story arc around it. There was a whole image that we sort of rolled into. To some degree, well, it was strange for me musically. It, it was interesting to sort of just, like, have the hired gun seat and let yeah. somebody else, like, do the hard work. Yeah, yeah. And especially because I was also studying at the time, it was probably easier. Yeah. But, it, you know, you went from DYS pushing the boundaries of what was, like, considered hardcore. Right. You're bringing in more rock elements, more metal elements. And then 
if you look at Slapshot, everything about Slapshot is old school hardcore, like back on the map, you know, like it would seem to me that you were in a space of wanting to progress musically, but then Slapshot would be like a clear callback to where your roots were. So what was that like for you? Well, also remember the time had changed. So the funny thing about disruption and changing is, so it's, it's, think about the year that Slapshot starts. The FUs had become the Straw Dogs. They were playing metal. Gangrene had been signed to a major label. They were on MTV playing metal, playing songs about cocaine. SSD had broken up. Any hardcore band that was left. Agnostic Front's a crossover band at that point. Agnostic mm-hmm. Front's playing metal. Everyone's playing guitars with pointy headstocks, mm-hmm. right? You know, as Brian Baker calls it, the, uh, the hockey stick guitar era. Mm-hmm. So in a weird way, Slapshot was like a retro disruption. <laughs> But it was still disruption. Yeah, yeah, man. And Choke's thing was like, we're going to show up at other people's shows and mess with them. Yeah, we're yeah. going to like, you know, somebody had a beer can in the audience with Choke would knock it out of their hand with his hockey stick. Yeah. Like, arguably, it was disruption in its own way. All right, because this is going to bring me to the next thing I went hit on. Um, so again, for for people who, who aren't going to know about this stuff, uh, I want to point out a couple of things here because it's an important part of the story. Um, Boston notoriously physical scene. You know, there are stories now it's 2019, almost 2020. And we are still talking about within certain circles, like how hard the Boston scene was. So tell me a bit about that being part of this, like very physical scene. I don't know where that came from, except for the personalities of the people who started it. Right. Al Burrill was a hockey player who self-admittedly used to go fight on Friday nights for fun. I'm bored. I'm going to go start fights in Mm. front of the disco. Right. I was a varsity wrestler. It was a very, Boston was largely like a suburban scene, not an urban scene. There weren't a lot of people from like actually Boston proper. So I think there was sort of more of a sports influence. We were weightlifters, you know, it's horribly politically incorrect to say at the time, but like there used to be saying, like if there's a girl in the pit, we're not thrashing hard enough. Like that was like an absolute Boston saying. You know, another thing from Boston is, I don't know if you remember, we had these things called sleeve hats, which was like you tear off the sleeve of, of a T-shirt and you wear on your head like a headband, keep your bald head warm. And we used to tell people like, dude, we don't make these things. You have to fucking tear it off somebody's sleeve in the pit. You earn a sleeve hat. Totally made up. The person who told you that cut it off a T-shirt themselves the night before. <laughs> right, right. And we told the kid who was coming to the show, you got to go earn a sleeve hat, dude. Go get in the pit and get one. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So you being like, you know, modern you, adult guy, looking back on that, what do you make out of that, like, physicality? Because, I mean, I, I walk an interesting line with it myself. You know, I've, I've got a, a background where I've, you know, I've gone to school for a long time. I, you know, I run a business, all of these things. But there's a certain place in my heart for just that kind of, like, aggressive space to play music. So tell me about that. Like, what do you think about it now as modern you? I actually have no regrets about any of the physical part about it, right? Like, I think it kept racists out of the scene right you know i think we were a threatening place for people with certain racial views or political views i think it was a way to let off teenage testosterone you know it was hugely different physicality than the la gang driven scene right like i remember again being suburban like you know we went to new york kids were carrying lead pipes around in their like denim jackets we weren't doing that in boston or like LA, you've got like the lads, LA death squad, you've got the suicidals, people are getting shot after shows. Like yeah. it was almost like 
pre-collegiate good old-fashioned fun relative to that right, right, right. you know so I, I you know i don't have a lot of regrets about it okay so and then the other thing of course we got to talk about is dys slapshot i mean these again are foundational super important straight edge bands um, again, uh, audience members who've listened to a few of our episodes, you know that I'm uh, not shy talking about Straight Edge. Straight Edge is a really a thing that just came from the punk scene. Uh, a band called Minor Threat started it. And it's the idea that you're saying alcohol, drugs, smoking, that's not for me. Uh, and not only is it not for me now, I'm just not going to do it. And it's just an idea of abstinence without there being a reason. So it's not addiction or anything like that. You're just saying, no, it's just not for me. I'm not going to do it. And so straight edge is a thing that many people are. And uh, there are you know, all sorts of bands that are straight edge bands and DYS and Slapshot being two of them. So tell me a little bit about the straight edge thing for you. So for me, it actually did have a reason, mm-hmm. right? I think it had a couple of reasons. As I'd mentioned earlier, it's actually rebellion to the sort of prevailing culture at the time, right? It's, it's, it's rebellion to the hippie culture. It's rebellion to the sort of expectation of being a teenager in America. Like, oh, you're going to blow off a little stream. You're going to drink. You're going to take drugs. It's about being aware. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't know how much impact you can have in the world of whatever you're trying to do, athletics, music, politics, business, without being aware, mm-hmm. you know, or without being present. So it had all those reasons to us. It was rebelling to the old punk scene guys too, mm-hmm. right? Like to some degree, the sort of drug and alcohol and groupie debauchery in prevailing punk was no different than it was for Led Zeppelin, except for the girls weren't as hot. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so are you still straight edge? I am today. One of my regrets professionally and sort of personally is early in my career, I succumb to the peer pressure and culture of American business. And what I mean by that is you have to think about a time when I started working, sobriety wasn't in the culture like it is today. Nobody really knew what straight edge was or nobody knew what straight edge was. And advertising where I started my career still had a bit of that Mad Men, Don Draper, you know, hard drinking culture. And I'd notice picking up in business meetings or business dinners that if I said I didn't drink or I refused to drink, those around me who drank, which for most people would either get uncomfortable and it would start to break the vibe of whatever deal we were trying to close, or you could tell they'd sort of have a question, right? Is this somebody who has a problem or had a problem or trying to manage a problem, which was never my situation. And so out of some sort of like professional expediency or insecurity, I sort of pretended to drink for a while. And what I mean by that is like alcohol touched my lips, I'd have sips, but I've poured thousands of drinks into like plants on bar (laughs) floors in Asia and Europe in America, because frankly, I don't like it. Yeah. Um, but I either didn't have the professional standing or the confidence to sort of just say, hey, I don't drink. And if you want to ask about it, I'll, I'll tell you why. Mm-hmm. And that became the status quo for a long time. I mean, I never really cared about alcohol. My wife's been a sober alcoholic for a long, long time. And early when we, we were dating, she used to say like, I've never met anybody who could just walk away from a half empty drink. Yeah. Right. It just wasn't important to me. You know, and, and even as I got a little older, a couple of sips of red wine and my head would hurt a little bit the next day. 
And you know, I might have gone along with that like nearly no alcohol status quo for a really long time. And then when we got an opportunity to put DYS back together, I just sort of said like, I can't get up on stage and perform those songs as even a fake part-time drinker. It just felt wrong. Mm. And because it wasn't important to me, just deciding to stop didn't take anything except deciding to stop. Mm-hmm. And so we started rehearsals for the first reunion show, I don't know, in 2008 or 2009. And that was it. Good for you, man. That's so cool. Uh, and I wanted to share that, you know, as we were getting ready to record, of course I asked like, Hey, are you still straight edge? And I appreciated your honesty and the vulnerability you shared talking about it because I can tell it actually matters to you. It matters to me a lot. I mean, DYS wasn't famous to hardly anybody. Slapshot wasn't famous to hardly anybody. But a few times in my professional life, my music life, my adult life, somebody's come up to me and said, I was having a really hard time with drugs and alcohol and your music or your viewpoint got me to a better place or got me to stop drinking. Years later, I'd have a conversation with somebody at the gym and I'd talk to them about, you know, hey, you don't have to do this or talk to them about straight edge and they never heard about straight edge. There was, there is a line of clothing called American Straight Edge and they were kind enough to send me a care package and I sort of use it as workout clothes. And even just that conversation, people would be like, what is that logo? What what does that X mean? What's American Straight Edge? And I would have a conversation about straight edge and somebody would invariably come back to me and say, you know, after our conversation, I stopped drinking or I stopped taking drugs or I go to the gym more. And it's had a positive impact on at least somebody's life. So it came back in your life and it really, you reconnected with how it felt back then, but today with you as, as you are today. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's such a cool story. And I'm like, I'm feeling a little inspired by that myself. Um, so again, for anyone listening, you know, I'm straight edge. I have been for uh, many, many years. Our engineer here, Dave is straight edge. We've all been involved and it's a huge part of my professional path is being straight edge. I have no problem talking about it. I think it's kind of a neat thing. When we get into the talking about your professional side, I do want to explore that a bit more because uh, it's something you had to manage. Anything else you want to talk about it before we start transitioning to the, into the career part? I'm good. All right. Let's talk career. So we get to the point where doing Slapshot and doing college gets a bit untenable. So you make the choice for college. I absolutely made the choice for college. Okay. I was choked when you told him, by the way. I'm sure it absolutely went badly. And I'm sure looking (laughs) back, I absolutely handled it badly, but it was the right thing to do. Okay. So we're in college. Um, Is what you studied what you're doing? As I referenced earlier, where everybody positions themselves as their career is just like up and to the right, unbending. I'm doing nothing that has anything to do with what I plan to do in college. (laughs) So with this passion for music, my first plan was I was going to be some sort of giant music industry lawyer. Mm -hmm. So I went to college and I studied political science because that's the sort of classic pre-law thing that you do in America. And I got involved in political campaigns and student government because that's what you do when you're planning for a law school in America. Uh, and, and a hilarious thing, I was student attorney general at some point. <laughs> and in working on political campaigns, I started thinking about it like marketing as it was, right? Like a candidate as marketing, a campaign as marketing. I was always 
the marketer in DYS, like Dave was the primary songwriter. Other people were much better musicians. You know, ultimately I thought about like what gear looks good on stage, what songs should be played in what order, you know, what should the tour flyer look like? What should the logo be? Like that was always my natural place in music just because they were like people that were better at the other stuff. Mm-hmm. So that was sort of natural and I'd sort of already worked on those muscles a little bit. And I got the opportunity to do an internship in an advertising agency and it felt unbelievably creative and unbelievably fun and like work that wasn't work. So I said, I'm going to do this for a year and decide if I'm going to go to law school or not. And all of a sudden it became 60 and 70 hour weeks and I never did. Okay. So I want to hit on, on, on this piece because you're saying it's like, it wasn't even like work. It was just fun. It was really exciting. It was super creative. And you'd mentioned earlier that in the band that you were almost kind of like the marketing person. So was this just an extension of what you had been learning from punk or was it something that maybe was just a natural ability that you had? I think it was probably some combination of extending some sort of natural ability plus playing in a relative comfort passion zone. But really, I mean, you know, once I got into it for real, what we were doing in punk was like, you know, 1% of it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, there was 99% of it that I had no idea about that I had to learn. Yeah. Okay. So you get into it and then what happens? Tell us about your career arc. So the first piece of my career is defined by working for some of the biggest and best known ad agencies in America. Mm-hmm. Very early, I sort of sensed what was coming with digital mm-hmm. and sort of the move away from television and traditional to less traditional mediums. And I gravitated to it for two reasons. First, I believed in that disruption. And secondly, I'm an ambitious opportunist and they're not going to let the kid run the television department. There is no grown up to run the digital department. Yeah. So they're going to let the kid run the digital department. Man, and I just see this clear parallel to punk, right? Like, you know, they're not going to they're not going to let the 15-year-old kids be on the major record label. They're not going to put out your records. They're not going to book your shows. So the 15-year-old kids are just going to be like, "Well, why don't we just do this instead? And we're going to make this so cool that eventually the industry will come over to us. They'll shift based on on us creating something that's undeniable." So it sounds like in your career you recognize hey, the old guard are there, you know, that person who's in that seat running the TV studio, they're going to hold on to that job until they're done. What else is out there? Where's the, what's uh, behind the, the corner? You have an ability to spot that and to say, well, actually, how do I make that so cool that the industry then comes to me? Well, I think it's a combination of realizing where the blockers are and where you can't go, mm-hmm. but also you've got to sort of have the confidence the arrogance, the comfort and the discomfort to create something where there's the, where there's the unknown. Mm-hmm. Tell me more about that. There's no roadmap. There's no proven success path. So you have to be comfortable without guardrails. Yeah. And you have to be comfortable saying, I'm going to walk into the room that I can't quite see all the way into the room yet. Because the downside of going down the traditional path of marketing or whatever is there's a bunch of legacy people and legacy process and legacy things in your way. But there's also a very clear path to the pot of gold. There's very clear steps and rules and things you can do to get there. And on the other side, you can view it as like an unblocked road to the pot of gold, or you can view it as a dark room and you have no idea if there is a pot of gold at the back end of the dark room. Yeah. yeah. So tell me about a time where that didn't work for you. 
Oh, there's so many times it didn't work for me. <laughs> give me, give me one. Give me one good one. I mean, you, you know, I think everybody's career has high points and low points mm-hmm. and, you know, there, there's a lesson that I've had to learn in my life over and over again. And despite the fact that it's tattooed across my back, I still have to learn it over and over again. And for those that don't know, I have in big letters tattooed across my back on wax wings from the flight of Icarus. And I did that on January 1st, 2000, because I thought it's an important thing to remember, even though I keep not remembering it. And I think it's an important set of things to live by. And you know, I think part of being a risk taker and part of being an entrepreneur is the tendency, you know, I think everybody's good traits and bad traits come locked together yeah. is the tendency to fly too close to the sun. Yeah. And I've overreached too many times. I've overgrabbed too many times. I've ended up in the sun too many times where I saw myself heading towards the sun and I could have said like, Hey, just like, fly down a little lower, you know, and it's, it's happened over and over again. I mean, you know, one of the scariest parts sort of professionally and financially is I'd moved from Los Angeles to New York in 2008 for like the biggest job title of my life. I'm like president of a division for the first time for like the biggest salary I've ever had in my life. I've flown too close to the sun and I've gotten myself in an apartment in New York city. That's like the dopest apartment I've ever had in my life that I probably couldn't afford I still own my house in LA and I'm renting it out to some guy and it's all going great. I'm flying back and forth between New York and LA and I got this big giant job and I got this business card with this big giant title. And then 2009 happens. And at that point I'm helping one of the biggest ad agency holding companies in the world, bring a new brand to America that they'd bought in Amsterdam and launch it in America. And all the appetite, for stretch goes out of the room. All the appetite for unproven side businesses go out of the room. You know, clients have cut back on spending. The economy is sort of going into free fall. You know, I I can be not the easiest person to work with. The knives are out. I'm fired. And then what happened? So the only path I could sort of figure to get out is I said, okay, my network's okay in New York but my network's better in LA. It's tough times. I need to be closer to my network. I got to cut this burn. The real estate market in LA has been hit much harder than the real estate market in New York. So I'm going to take less of a bath on the New York piece. So both of those things align. I'm going to sell the New York apartment as fast as I can. I'm going to get back to LA as fast as I can. And I'm going to work my network. And so I do those things. And luckily, because the New York real estate market held up a lot better than the LA real estate market, I lose hundred thousand dollars. It's a lot of money, right? But it could have been a lot, lot worse. I start networking. No ad agency in the world is hiring, right? But what I'm hearing is clients are still doing business more than agencies are still doing business. I get a call from one of the top recruiters in America for job running marketing for a video game company. It's Atari, kind of the legendary video game company. They're not in the best shape. They're trading on the French stock exchange. They're losing a bunch of money. I sort of said, who's the CEO? They tell me the name of the CEO. I was like, is that the guy that used to run Universal Interactive? He used to be a client of mine. He gets my CV. He's like, hey, is that Jonathan Anastas who used to run my business? It was. And we end up in a room together. And luckily, because we had a pre-existing relationship where I had proven value to him, he was willing to take a chance on letting an agency guy be a brand marketing guy. 
And that kickstarted the sort of second arc of my professional life as a brand marketer. And it's interesting because like a lot of things in life, sort of out of the darkest, scariest moment became sort of a transformational opportunity. And, you know, the only credit I'll give myself in it is not giving up. And luckily in the time that I had with Jim as his agency partner, proving some value. If I had not proven any value, he wouldn't have hired me, right? We had a history to go on. And aside from that, it was just like luck. Right on, man. So take us from that moment to where we are today. So from Atari, I ended up getting called by Activision, who for people that don't follow video games, Activision's the biggest video game publisher in the world at that time. So it's kind of like going from AAA ball with like a famous brand to the big leagues. Yeah. And I moved back to LA and First, while this funny world keeps going back to music, I'm running marketing for Guitar Hero, right? Sort of legendary billion-dollar franchise. And again, it's one of those opportunities where like, well, I'm always worried about like, is my past a liability? Is my past a liability? Is my past a liability? My past becomes a positive. Yeah. And did that for a little bit until Activision decided to take a breather from Guitar Hero. And they made me their first global head of digital that the company never had. So I was sort of overseeing digital across all the franchises and, you know, spending time with our European teams, help launch Call of Duty China with Tencent. So first time I've sort of taken a franchise to Asia and had an incredible five and a half year run. And at the end of the day, I probably would have stayed there, except for I started to get impatient about the CMO title, right? Like, I'm ready to be a CMO. I'm ready to be a CMO. And I think when you're in the thick of things, you know, working 60, 70 hours a week and, you know, you sort of are like, you get hyper fixated on things like the title matters, the title matters, the title matters, right? And I get this offer and my boss was clearly good guy, but not going anywhere, right? Why would you give up the job of CMO of Activision? You wouldn't, right? So I take another job at a company called the Enthusiast Network, which is a bit of a turnaround. Over the course of two years, we launched the first automotive SVOD service, sort of the Netflix of cars. We build our YouTube channel into like 1.5 billion views, the largest automotive YouTube channel in the world. And we sell the company to Discovery because they had an automotive television network called Velocity and they hadn't planned for the future. Mm -hmm. So they're looking at like, do we build something like that or do we buy something like that? And we built some assets that were valuable and plugged very easily into the linear television business that they built. And then we sold the company, the management team exited, and I joined a music startup called Live by Live, which streams music, both video and audio. And we took that company public at the very end of 2017. Right on, man. What a great story. All right. I want to start taking a step back and asking you about what role you see punk and what you learned there and how you cut your teeth there. How has that really carried through your career? What difference maker has it been for you? The muscle memory, which I think is a really good term for it, that I sort of got from punk was the thought that like, you have to like sort of build a business and manage a business and drive it forward. Because as we talked about earlier, if I'd been playing something aside from hardcore, there would have been somebody to do almost all those things for me. Yeah. Assuming I was good enough, talented enough, pretty enough, whatever it was, right? But none of those things existed. So we had to do it ourselves. So if you're sort of doing disruptive things in business, 
you got to be, you got to figure out like, this is a grind, right? Like I got a sweat equity from punk rock. I got like, uh, don't ask permission, you know, ask forgiveness from punk rock. (laughs) I got, uh, if you need money, figure out how to get it. Right. Nobody's handing you big checks. You got to figure out how to fund it. You got to figure out how to keep it going. Right. If I can run a band on $10 per day per diems and figure out how to get from city A to city B and feed everybody McDonald's, I can figure out how to run a P and L at some point. There's just more zeros in the end of it. Right. Mm-hmm. And all that became muscle memory, right. Became rehearsal for, you know, bigger P and L's. Yeah. So if you were thinking about what you learned from punk, is there anything that didn't translate or anything that caused you issues in your career? Well, I mean, I'm far more impatient than I should be because of punk rock in part or because of that's who I am. I'm far more likely to say fuck you rather than like, yes, and. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so there's, there was this uh, real interesting punk band called Half Off from California. And I was reading an interview with the singer that was done just maybe like five or six years ago. And they said, hey, like, what's one of the things from punk that, has it worked for your life? And he was like, well, in punk, there's this idea like your opinion really matters, like voice your opinion, like say your ideas and do that. He's like, what I had to learn in my professional career, that's not actually true. (laughs) You shouldn't give your opinion on everything. You should, you should speak when it's important to speak. You should raise your idea. And he was like, you know, as an adult, I had to relearn how to bring my opinion up at the right time. And I can say as like a professional, I relate to a lot of your, of your story but one of the things that I know from the punk scene is like being able to speak out and having zero fear that I about speaking out has been a huge benefit to me, but also not picking my spot has also been an issue. And I had to really learn how to pick my spot so I could get really good as a business person. Uh, that sounds like that's been, a, I been, am guilty of not picking my spot <laughs> over and over and over again. I have not yet learned not to pick my spot. I have not yet learned how to not fly close to the sun. <laughs> right. cool. um, so so another thing I wanted to ask you about is punk is, uh, you know, notoriously like anti-corporate, anti-big business. And it's interesting being in the punk world and also being in the business world. So I wanted to ask your thoughts on that. Like, how do, how do you align growing up in this like punk scene and kind of creating this thing? And then also then going into work for these giant you know, corporations. The funny thing about how people view that is I've taken like a, different view of where business fits into this thing over time. So if you look at like American trust studies, American business is actually considered a more trusted entity than the press, than government, or than NGOs. I also feel like maybe if I went to work for GE or IBM or something like that, I'd have a different viewpoint. But I actually feel like much of the structural change and innovation in America comes from private industry, comes from business, comes from entrepreneurs. You know, you can say what you want about Uber or WeWork. There's something very punk rock about what they did. Uber broke cabs. Cabs deserve to be broken. I think what everybody's forgotten in this like anti-Uber world is like taxi cabs were the people that didn't pick up black people to take them to Brooklyn. Taxi cabs were the people that like exploited immigrants mm-hmm. and like rented them cabs in a way that they could never make money over the course of the day. I don't care that Uber 
minted billionaires. I think if you have a great idea and you have the drive to get it funded and you've got the drive to take it public and scale it all over the world, I don't think there should be a cap to what you make. I don't think there's anything anti-punk rock to getting rich. American business has done a whole bunch of bad things, but American business has done a whole bunch of good things and is like, I really feel like the engine of change more than most other parts of the world that we live in. Yeah. Well, and so that's a question I'm really interested about specifically to you. Um, the ideas of punk, I mean, for me are just as valid as they were when I was 15, when I got into punk. I remember listening to Seven Seconds records and being like, oh, wow, like this is going to change the world or like I'm going to be a part of changing the world. And now that I work, you know, deeply in the corporate sector, I do view that's my mission, that I am helping change the world. Even if what I'm doing that day is just helping someone like get better at writing an email, it's like just helping to empower someone, making someone's day a little brighter. But then again, like as an executive coach, as an educator, and then ultimately, I'm really just a therapist that works in the business world. I help companies make all sorts of really tough decisions about people, about whether or not something's ethical, how they're gonna move forward. I really believe that there is a place for punk values at play in the corporate world that can help make real change. What are your thoughts on that? Sure. I mean, I think ultimately real change comes from the ability to take a contrary point of view, contrary view on a sector, the ability to want to make a difference. I think if that comes with great financial reward, I don't think anybody should care. Mm -hmm. I honestly... I've never worked at a company where we woke up in the morning and had a team meeting on 9 a.m. on Monday and said, like, let's make something mediocre. <laughs> like, right. let's make something to rip off the American consumer. Right. Like, that's not been the American business that I've lived in. Like, have, have hugely bad decisions been made in American business? Of course. Mm -hmm. Have I watched hugely bad decisions being made? Have I been part of hugely bad decisions? Likely. Yeah. Have people been screwed? Sure. Have we treated everybody fairly? No. I mean, the funny thing is, you know, my sort of punk view is very sort of tinted with like libertarianism and a bit of nihilism, which is like, I'm not a socialist punk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. totally, man. Um, okay. So let's get into some like advice piece. We got people here from all sorts of uh, walks of life that listen to this podcast and some of them are just straight up business people. Um, but a lot of them are people from the punk scene, people who are, maybe they're just like, oh, what's, you know, who's around talking to you this time? But others are like, hey, I'm coming up and I'm trying to find my place in corporate America or in my, in my career. So this is straight for the punks. These are for the people who are in college or who are in their first job or their second job. And they're looking for, how do I find my path and stay true to my roots of just being like a, a punk person? So any advice, any career advice, any advice about how you can bring that real, like who you really are as like a punk rocker coming up in the business world? Well, I think my first advice would be, you probably can't change who you are and you probably can't change who your employer is culturally. So I think the first step is like to find the place where like the you that you are are is valued and a place where you can feel like you can be the more you. Like if you walk into a place for an interview and you sort of feel like, I don't feel like I can be me here, that likely isn't going to change. Yeah. Right? So it's it's easier to find the place that fits you mm -hmm. than make you try to fit the place. And it'll ultimately be like an easier path every day and more successful. So I think that's the first place to start. Mm -hmm. I think the second place to start is like sort of figure out what piece of it that you're passionate about, whether that's 
a category like I love video games or I love music or I love technology or whether like, hey, I'm really care about like figuring out how to make company two points more profitable by like better manipulating how we run our receivables, which I think is creative as anything creative, or I have a passion for like marketing or advertising or product development because you're going to spend a lot of hours and a lot of years doing it. And like, you can't fake the excitement for it and you can't fake the unhappiness about it. Mm. And, you know, it's advice that I should have taken at different points in my life. And I sort of like was fearful about like, well, if I don't take this, I don't know if the next one's going to come and I've got bills to pay. Right. Because we've established that I fly too close to the sun. Mm. Um, You know, insecurity has kept me from holding out for those facet sometimes and it's never worked out well long-term. Now, sometimes it's been okay because sometimes you just need to bridge. Yeah. And it's also okay to say like, I'm a pragmatist and I, I need to bridge myself. And as long as you go in knowing that you need to bridge myself, or like as long as you don't do that too often, mm-hmm. it's okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, I got three last questions for you. And then of course, any other comments you want to put in there uh, whatsoever afterwards? Shoot. Okay. Top three punk bands of all time. Oh God, I'm so <laughs> terrible at those questions. <laughs> I'm terrible at like the top three anythings because I, I can't separate all the pieces. Rather than list back to you my top three punk bands, I'm going to tell you about the three punk bands that had the most impact on me. Perfect. Which may or may not be the top three punk bands. So SSD Control, Black Flag with Henry Rollins as a five piece and The Clash. Okay, great, great answer. All right, they're only going to get more difficult from here. So looking through the eyes of you today, which was actually the best scene in the early 80s? Boston, New York, or D.C.? It's funny because you left out Los Angeles and San Francisco. I wasn't a member of all those scenes, so it would be really unfair to judge it. I mean, the interesting thing is they were hugely different. What kind of people they attracted, what kind of morals they lived by. You know, I can't tell you what, a part of my education going to New York as a kid and landing in Times Square when Times Square was at its worst and like showing up at A7 in CBGB's in the Lower East Side at a time where the police didn't go below 14th Street didn't help define who I was. So I have, I've got a lot of love for that. You know, DC felt like home a lot to us, pretty similar, very middle class, a lot of kids from educated backgrounds. Um, we clearly shared a bit of straight edge. The musically, we were very different. DC was a lot more melodic. You know, I remember coming out to California for the first time and it just felt like a foreign country. But for whatever reason, it had not enough effect on me that like in my adult life, it's where I've spent a huge percentage of my time. There's something magical about Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And then there's Boston. I think part of what made Boston different than those other cities is there was sort of like a flinty Protestant work ethic, judgmental, like, you know, make your bones work hard thing that didn't quite exist in the other scenes. Like the Boston punk scene was like, or the Boston hardcore scene was like a scene of workers. Like we worked. Yeah. Yeah. And that was apparent, man. It was apparent in the records. So we got to pick one though. I can't. (laughs) I can respect that. All right. Last question. Um, what for you is the most satisfying or most special part of being able to be back on stage with DYS today? 
So I'm going to answer that question by lifting the curtain a little bit more than I should. I'm a big believer in like, you know, band should be a little bit like Oz and you don't necessarily see behind the curtain, but I'm, I'm going to lift the curtain a little. So DYS ended in a very unfinished way to me um, without any intention. It dribbled to an ending. We didn't call an ending. We didn't have a final show, as you pointed out. We made our first record before we really knew how to write or make a record. And so part of what I want to do when I had the opportunity is as a marketer, as a guy who's sort of worked with brands for a long time is like, where would I like to take this brand that I didn't get to take it the last time? And so when we started to put a set together, I've done everything from like change the songs, which a lot of people said to me, don't. And I said, this should sort of feel like good plastic surgery. You can see that somebody looks fresher, but you can't see exactly what they had done. Mm. So I go back to a song like Brotherhood and I was like, why the hell did we do verse, chorus, verse, chorus, end? <laughs> Let's try verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge or breakdown, chorus, 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 out, right? Mm -hmm. Like sort of think about it as more songs. And so I've, I've sort of think like if we had a little bit more writing sophistication, what would we have done? Um, I think a little bit more about like how punk is scaled mm -hmm. since we did it the last time around that like, you know, if we played in front of a thousand people before it was a big deal, like I've been so humbled to like get on the stage at like a Graz rock in front of like 3000 people or like, you know, play South by Southwest or all these sort of legendary things. And I've sort of said, like, I want to put the kind of ending on DYS that I always wanted to put on DYS uh -huh. the first time. And that's even gone to like, you know, well, the last thing anybody ever wants to hear out of a legacy artist is their new music. I I've been sort of super uncomfortable with that. And I said, we're going to write new stuff and we're going to put new stuff out. And it's the songs that I want to write in the produced in the way that I would like them produced. And we're going to put them out in the world. Frankly, I don't give a shit if anybody likes them or not. That's mm -hmm. how I'm feeling musically today. And so the weird thing is we've actually played more shows as a reunited band than we ever played the first time around. We've played in front of like many multiples of more people than we ever played the first time around. We played in more countries. We played in more festivals. Not because of anything special about us, but just because that's how the scenes changed, right? That's mm -hmm. how the scenes scaled. And so right, wrong, or indifferent, whether I'm putting some marketer's view on the world or not, I sort of feel like if it all ended tomorrow, I kind of put a real ending on the thing. And I kind of gave the story a full arc. And I could kind of walk away from it now feeling like that's how I want it to be remembered. Right on, man. What a great way to wrap up this interview. Well, uh, Jonathan, I got to tell you, I am so appreciative of your time. And, you know, we, we did a much longer interview than we'd intended, and I loved it. It was uh, every every moment was fantastic for me. So uh, as we're wrapping up, I just want to say thank you. And I want to say to our audience, um, don't put a cap on yourself. You know, when you're looking at your career and where you want to go and who you want to be, Use all the things, all the pieces of your life, all the exciting times, all the things that hurt you, all the things that scared you, all the things you've learned. And why don't you just set a destination unknown? You can go into that dark room and you can find the light switch, but it's up to you to do that. And we've just had a great example of that. So with that, Jonathan, thank you so much. Thank I you. I appreciate the opportunity to sort of like be honest and tell the story, right? You don't often get the opportunity in American business and life to sort of like just tell it. Yeah, absolutely. So with that brotherhood, true till death and Dave, drop the beat. 
Damn. That was an awesome conversation. I wish all of you could have seen my face through that whole interview. I was glowing the whole time. I love DYS. They were, and still are, a huge influence on me. And Jonathan, thank you so much. Super cool, really open. And since our conversation, we've been in touch a lot. And I really feel that was just such a cool example of how you can have a shared community, even though you were divided from generations, and still be able to have that great connection on it. It was uh, fantastic. And reflecting a lot after that episode, professionally for me, when I first started entering into the workplace, I was told multiple times, hey, never talk about coming from the punk world, you know, cover your tattoos. And very specifically, when I started working in the corporate world, I remember my boss at the time requested that I get specially tailored shirts that were long so it would cover up my, <laughs> cover up my tattoos. And at the time, I just thought, gosh, like, I, I don't know, this doesn't seem right. And I decided instead of doing that, I was just going to be myself. And I was going to tell people about the band and I was going to let my tattoos show. And honestly, that's what drew people to me as a coach. People were more interested in the story behind the tattoos and they wanted to know about the bands because that's what made me real to them. I wasn't just giving them some polished surface. I was being who I really am. And when you're who you really are, you can really be of service to people. So Jonathan is a great example of that. And you know, there's ups and downs when you bring your whole self into work. You've got to learn how to bring the best version of you forward, but it is important to be your full self. So um, one more thing I wanted to add in. As I mentioned earlier, Jonathan and I have been in touch quite a bit since the episode, and he shared with me some really big changes that have happened in his life since recording. There's been some really exciting changes and then also some tough ones as well. On the exciting front, he shared with me that he's taken on the chief marketing officer role at One Championship, which is this really significant shift for him. One Championship is Asia's largest global sports media property. And this is a big move for him and congratulations. He's also had a couple other things. Again, as I said, both really exciting and some tough. And it's got me thinking that we might have some space for a second conversation so we can explore that. So until then, I hope all of you got as much out of today's episode as I did myself because it was just a, a huge moment for me. And at the end of the day, when you're looking at your career, it's not just who you are today. It's who you have been, who you are now, and who you're going to be that matters in the long run. So thanks so much, and we will see you next time on One Step Beyond. One Step Beyond.